Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. After I had prepared the program this week, and I waited to the last minute to do this introduction, something unusual happened in the American Congress that did not get a big headline, but is it is of vast importance to this part of the world, to Israel, and I think to the world in general. A group of eight U.S. lawmakers, four Democrats and four Republicans, half from the Senate and half from the House, announced the creation of a bipartisan Abraham Accords caucus to work towards strengthening the existing agreements between Israel and the Arab countries and expanding them to other Muslim countries. What it does is it demonstrates bipartisan support for Israel and Washington, and it can give a push toward getting other countries in the area to join the Accords. The Accords were brokered by the Trump administration. They were signed back in 2020 between Israel and the United Emirates and Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco shortly afterwards. So this caucus will provide an opportunity to strengthen the Abraham Accords by encouraging partnerships among the existing Abraham Accords countries and expanding the agreements to include countries that do not currently have diplomatic relations with Israel. This was said in a joint statement uh, when the agreement was signed between the Republicans and the Democrats. And if you stop to think about it, this is absolutely mind-boggling. Five years ago, no one would have thought of this whatsoever. And here we have not only agreement between Israel and Muslim countries, but you have it being recognized in the U.S. Congress, which gives it much support and will allow, allow other countries to join. That's great news. I'll be back after the break. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom. I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show.
You're back with Jay Shapiro. <clears throat> I want to say a few words about why so-called anti-Zionism always is really pure anti-Semitism. The excuses given by the so-called woke left that we only are against Zionism, not against Jews. It's not anti-Semitism, it's only anti-Zionism, unquote. The response to that claim often gets into all kinds of theory and politics that completely miss the point. It certainly is possible to oppose policies of the state of Israel without being anti-Jewish. Indeed, even strong Zionists often oppose particular actions of the Israeli government, like the 2006 Gush Katif evacuation or the resistance to extend sovereignty over the regions of Judea and Samaria, where today 475,000 Jews including another 325,000 in East Jerusalem. That's almost a million people in the areas conquered in the Six-Day War. For decades, until then, Finance Minister Benjamin Netanyahu helped steer Israel toward free market capitalism, many liberal Zionists opposed the country's socialist economy and I include myself among them. Others on the socialist side, who love Israel as deeply, oppose the economic shift toward encouraging outside venture capital and moving away from the kibbutz type of life. It certainly is acceptable to love, love one's family, one's country, and one's people, and still to criticize them. In America, likewise, we find advocates on all sides who stand by their country but criticize the mismanagement, for example, the mismanagement of immigration at the southern border or during the evacuation of Afghanistan. You can love a country and still you're part of the family and you can criticize it. What makes anti-Zionism different is that it does not aim at policy difference nor even at animus against political personalities, but it is aimed at, de at delegitimizing a core component of the Judaic paradigm, the Jewish connection with the land. That is what they are against, the anti-Zionists. Zionism, simply put, in its simplest and most basic essence, is the belief that a Jew has a special connection with the land of Israel. The mountains in Jerusalem, where the Temple of King Solomon was built, and then was rebuilt upon the return of the Babylonian exiles, is known alternatively as Har Habayat, the Temple Mount, Har Hamoriah, Mount Moriah, and Hartzion, Mount Zion. Not unlike tens of millions of Bible-loving Christian Zionists, the decided majority of Jews throughout history has harbored a unique emotional connection to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Italian-Americans get that. They understand that. That's why so many commercials to visit Rome and Florence and Milan tours of Italy. The, uh, it's a reason that many Irish Americans try to visit what they call the Old Sod, 
produced everywhere in the world, is this like a Thanksgiving Day country, a Seder country? You may not love everyone at the dinner table, but you would have it no other way because they all are family. To define oneself as anti-Zionist is the same as self-identifying as an anti-kosher food. Certainly a person is welcome to eat all the ham and pork and bacon that he likes. No one expects others to be kosher or even to prefer so-consulted meat. But to be anti-kosher? What would that be all about? All because you're not kosher, why be anti-kosher? So someone living, uh, why should be against someone living a more traditionally authentic Jewish life? Ultimately, that is what anti-Zionism is. Instead of visiting or residing in Israel, one is welcome to prefer a vacation, for example, in Saudi Arabia. And don't forget to bring home some sand for the kids. No one has to like people who write from right to left, who have emergency medical vehicles with red stars of David instead of red crescents or red crosses painted on the ambulance. But to be anti-Zionist, that's like being anti-kosher or anti-matzah, because when it comes down to it, Zionism is actually a core part of the very definition of being a Jew. That is why anti-Zionism is really pure anti-Semitism. No one who is reasonable denies that the Italian love for Venice, the French love for Paris, the British love for London, or the Spanish love for Barcelona. Even among the COVID pandemic, expatriates' hearts and minds remain fixed on lands of heritage. To deny only Jews that simple human earning shared by all others is to manifest something much deeper than a mere disagreement over where ice cream should be sold or fictional work should be translated. To be anti-Zionist is simply to be anti-Semitic. And it's interesting, the reason I even brought it up is because you hear people say they're not anti-Semitic, but they're simply anti-Zionist. There's no difference. To be anti-Zionist is the same as being anti-Semitic. It's just a cover word. So when someone says, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Zionist, what he's essentially saying is, I, did, I deny the Jews their ancient homeland. And that is simply anti-Semitic. And I, I just wanted to mention that to get it off my mind today, because I've seen a lot of headlines over the last, in particular the last few weeks, about anti-Zionism not being the same as anti-Semitism. But I, I want to put, the, put a line under it. It's actually the same thing. Now I want to switch topics. That's enough about anti-Semitism. I want to say something about Jewish roots here in, uh, what, in Israel. A 2,700-year-old uh, 2, biblical fortress in Jerusalem is undergoing restoration. Uh, right here in French Hill, it's a place, it's a big bus stop in French Hill, there is a 2,700-year-old Jerusalem fortress dating back to the time of the biblical kings of Judea, and it's undergoing restoration. 
and it's located in the French Hill neighborhood. There's a big bus stop there. It's a citadel. It's like 18 and a half times 13 meters. It has an open courtyard and rooms on both sides. It's built on the top of a hill. Uh, it was discovered at the end of the 1960s, and experts believed that it might have been part of a series of citadels that were built to guard and protect Jerusalem during the First Temple period. Uh, it's mentioned in several parts of the Bible. It's rather fascinating. It said that um, in the uh, in the book of uh, Chronicles, the 11th chapter of Chronicles, it says, uh, referring to King Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, it said he dwelt in Jerusalem and built four to five towns in Judah. In other words, the... Um, He's believed to have ruled over Judah in the 10th century before the common area. So what happened was he strengthened and fortified towns and put commanders in them in order to protect the entrance to Jerusalem, make sure that Jerusalem was safe from invaders. Uh, he, uh, a few other kings are mentioned in the book of Kings, and which is said that they built towns in the hill country of Judah and in the woods, or they built fortresses and towers. The whole idea was to build these fortresses around Jerusalem in order to protect Jerusalem. And now, today in modern Jerusalem, which is extended far, far uh, greater area than the original Jerusalem, which is within the walls, so Whenever you uh, start digging anywhere in Jerusalem, you might come across some some relic of those fortresses that were built uh, almost three three thousand years ago to protect the city of Jerusalem. That's why whenever someone goes uh, uh, wants to even build a house, it's true anywhere in Israel, you 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 might come across something, and then you have to call in the antiquities authority to make sure that you're not destroying something of uh, of heritage. So the uh, it's interesting, but the, uh, the the project is going on. It's right near a bus stop, and um, what they're doing is preserving heritage sites and developing them, and essentially passing them on to future generations. And that and that is a national right. It's really a national duty. The uh, they have in Jerusalem what's called the Landmarks Project of Jerusalem and Heritage Ministry. And what it does, it works together with the Israel Antiquities Authority to participate in the restoration of all these heritage sites. The public saves heritage assets, same time they develop a direct connection with them. So one of the interesting things, particularly in Israel in general, and in particular in Jerusalem, you dig down, you have no idea what you're going to find, and you might find a fortress that's based on what's written in the Bible. It's very interesting to live here. I'll be back after the break.
You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany is but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the use of words to give them meaning that... uh, as soon as you hear those words, you know what is meant. What I mean, for example, in recent years, the pro-Palestinian propaganda industry has released uh, several uh, important words to them in its ongoing effort to defame and delegitimize the state of Israel. These two words are apartheid and genocide. Apartheid and genocide belong to a carefully honed lexicon that is routinely employed by pro-Palestinian activists when holding forth on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether verbally or in print. This lexicon rests upon many emotionally loaded terms and phrases like occupation, illegal settlements, colonialism, social justice, and the right of return. These words, these expressions, are intended to divert the listener's attention from the facts and to evoke uh, effect. In other words, to send up an emotional smokescreen. Apartheid and genocide are the real main words of this lexicon. You know, it's interesting, when you're a small kid, before adolescence, many become aware that certain words exist in a hierarchy. they what they call cuss words. They are ranked lower, and there are others that are ranked higher. The, the, the F word is universally ranked at the top, and if employed in polite company, can stop all conversation. In the present woke political atmosphere, accusations of apartheid and genocide are of comparable weight to that F-word. They are the most disparaging and derogatory claims that may be leveled against any group or state. Perpetrators are considered to be the scourge of humanity, and they are beneath contempt. Accusing Israel of genocide and apartheid is a form of political cursing. It serves no purpose other than to insult, stigmatize, and delegitimize the Jewish state. They are the F-words of politics against Israel. The allegation that Israel practices apartheid and genocide is also an example of the big lie. The big lie is any preposterous claim that over the long term and with frequent reputation gains credibility and against and believers. 
With time, empirical truths fall away as the big lie relentlessly propagated succeeds in tapping into people's emotion. That was developed by the Nazis. You have a lie, a big lie, and you keep repeating it. The uh, We witnessed an example of this, by the way, in a controversy surrounding the visit of the U.S. Vice President to uh, George Mason University. Uh, a, a, uh, she gave a fairly feckless response to a student who matter-of-factly accused the state of Israel of practicing ethnic genocide against Palestinians, and uh, she didn't respond to it. So essentially, the American vice president, by not responding to this big lie, this accusation of ethnic genocide, essentially validated this view in front of the cameras. The, the student's uneducated accusation was consistent with the mendacious chants that are shouted in the slogans that are displayed on placards at hundreds of anti-Zionist demonstrations, particularly on American college campuses. Both accusations, apartheid and genocide, are untrue, but they have now become a staple of the anti-Israel left. Progressive Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who happens to be Jewish, who himself didn't shy away from labeling as racist the government of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he acknowledged in a May broadcast on CBS News interview program called Face the Nation when he stated that his fellow progressives should tone down the rhetoric when it comes to language, such as apartheid used to describe Israel's treatment of Palestinians. So even Bernie Sanders realized that the propagandists against Israel may have gone too far. However, an even greater yardstick of the success of these lies is the impact that the tactics has, this tactic has had upon American Jews themselves. The state of Israel and its security was for a long time the one issue upon which American Jews of all backgrounds could agree. At the end of this last June, 800 American Jewish voters of various ages were polled by uh, the Jewish Electorate Institute regarding their attitude toward the state of Israel. Among the findings were that 34% agreed that Israel's treatment of Palestinians is similar to racism in the United States, 25% agreed that Israel is an apartheid state, and 22% agreed that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. Now, we're talking about Jewish voters, 800 American Jews. In, 18, in 1948, the estimated number of Palestinian Arabs living, living within the state of Israel was 156,000. Upon conclusion of the War of Independence in 1949, 
Outside the state, in Judea, Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza Strip lived approximately 700,000 Arabs. So that means there was a total of 856,000 Palestinian Arabs within Israel and outside of Israel, but west of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Today, the total number combining Arab Israeli Arabs and Arabs living under the Palestinian Authority and under Hamas in Gaza comes to around 7,500,000, a population nearly nine times the size in 1948. So any accusation of uh, Palestinians being the victims of genocide at the hands of Israel is patently ludicrous. Some anti-Israel circles, like the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, have taken to redefining genocide in a matter that lends credence to this very partisan view of the condition of the Palestinians. According to this leftist think tank, the term genocide does not necessarily signify mass killings. More often, genocide refers to a coordinated plan aimed at destruction of the essential foundations of the life of national groups. That's a new definition. And even this revised definition is not applicable to the state of Israel's true relationship with the Palestinian. No less absurd is the charge of apartheid. Unfortunately, Israel's Arab population, as is true for ethnic minorities every Western democracy, are often the victims of social prejudice and discrimination. But this behavior does not reflect the state and the state's attitude. Under Israeli law, all the country's citizens are equal. We have Arab members of the Knesset, of Israel's parliament. The, as pointed out time and time again, many of Israel's Arab citizens have achieved remarkable success in government, law, business, high-tech, culture, and the professions. Outside pre-1967 Israel, in Judea and Samaria, security restrictions imposed by the Israeli army upon the Arab population represents defensive policies that were established in response to years of Palestinian terrorism, both there and that crossed the border into the state itself. Israel, Israel's detractors see racially motivated bigotry and apartheid instead of what they really are. They are legitimate security concerns. Within the woke ideological value system that's taken command of so much of liberal and progressive thinking, truth is irrelevant. What matters to Israel's enemies is branding the Jewish state with false accusations of genocide and apartheid. They are emotionally charged in the arsenal of political propaganda. There's no quicker, easy way for Israel to counter these emotional attacks the response requires rigorous and ongoing exposure of foreigners to the on-site experiences, the reality of Israel that contradict false Palestinian claims and bear witness to the many unsung positive interactions between Israelis and Palestinians. The question is, how should this be done?
and Israel government has been failing in its propaganda and public relations. The reality of Israel is the Arabs are better off here than many Arab countries, and we have a job to see to it that this message gets out, and unfortunately, our government has failed to deliver this message, particularly on campuses in the United States, and that is one of the battles for the survival of the state of Israel. I'll be back after the break. I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There was an anniversary last week that didn't get much attention, although it should have had. I'm talking about Kristallnacht. Last week, Jews all over the world commemorated the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. It's named after the windows of Jewish businesses and homes that were shattered during the overnight of November 9th to 10th, 1938 in Germany. Most synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and the annexed Czechoslovakian Sudetenland were plundered and set on fire that night. Thousands of Jewish businesses were damaged, and more than 30,000 Jewish men were sent to concentration camps. The trigger for Kristallnacht can be found in March 1938, following the annexation of Austria into the German Reich. The Polish authorities were concerned about the increased persecution of Jews in those countries. It wasn't the welfare of these Jews that they were worried about, but rather the fear that many Polish Jewish nationals would either want to return to Poland or be forced to return to Poland by the Nazis. So in October of that year, the Polish government legislated a denationalization law that annulled the citizenship of Poles living abroad for more than five years unless they received a special stamp in their passports from the Polish consulates before the end of the month. Not surprisingly, Jews were refused this possibility. German policy 
back in 1938 was not yet mass extermination, but they simply wanted to get the Jews out of Germany, down to the last Jew. So the Nazi regime was concerned when Polish officials would not stamp the passports of Jews, thus making all of them stateless. Because without passports, they would have to remain in Germany. The chief of the SS, Himmler, ordered that all Polish Jews be immediately and forcefully deported to Poland. It was during the early hours of October 28 that the Polish Jews had to respond to the dreaded knock on the door that really spelled nothing more than terror. Almost 20,000 Jewish men, women, and children were arrested, permitted to hurriedly pack just one suitcase, and with an allowance of just 10 Deutsche Marks, transported to the Polish border in sealed trains. When the Poles became aware of this, they closed the border. The Germans didn't want them, and the Poles didn't want them. So they were faced with the Polish army on one side and German army on the other, and these Jews were stranded hopelessly in a no-man's land. The Jewish welfare organization, ORT, was allowed to hastily erect some shelter while the Poles and Germans argued for three days. The conditions for these Jews was grim and food was short. Eventually, the Poles were forced to accept this increasingly dejected, hungry, and tired mass. The largest number were held in a Polish border town. For months, they slept in poorly constructed sheds and stables with very few provisions. The severity of the conditions was witnessed by Polish-Jewish historian Emanuel Ringenblum, who described the hopelessness of deportees in a letter. He wrote, I do not think any Jewish community has ever experienced so cruel and merciless an expulsion. The future is envisaged in desperate terms. Jews have been humiliated to the level of lepers. They become fourth-class citizens, and as a result, we are all affected by this terrible tragedy, unquote. Some months later, most were transported to Warsaw. Among those deported was the Grinchman family from Hanover. Their 17-year-old son, Herschel, was living illegally in Paris, his sister was able to send him a postcard which detailed the cruelty and tragedy of the family's forced relocation. Enraged and distressed by the plight of his family, thousands of other Polish Jews, <coughs> Herschel Greenspan went to the German embassy in Paris asking to see the ambassador. He was taken to third secretary, a man named Ernst von Rath, and he was faced him. Herschel drew a pistol and shot him. Von Rath died of his wounds on November 7th. That was the trigger for the so-called spontaneous events of Kristallnacht two nights later. It is documented the plans for this crime had already been laid by Himmler in great detail and communicated to all Nazi officers in Germany 
and the lands under German control that he only waited for a suitable occasion to implement it. He looked for an excuse. On that fateful 10th, Jews, Jewish businesses and synagogues were burning, and the fire service was in attendance not to douse the flames that engulfed the synagogues, but to cool and protect neighboring German property from being damaged. One other fact was worth mentioning. After the synagogue uh, fires, some remaining walls of one of the synagogues was, was considered to be a danger to the public. And to add insult to injury, the Jewish community was asked to pay for the demolition of the building. I use the word asked broadly. They were commanded. When Herschel Greenspan was arrested by French police, he protested. He said, being a Jew is not a crime. I am not a dog. I have a right to exist on this earth. Wherever I have been, I was hounded like an animal. There are conflicting reports about what happened to Herschel Greenspan, but it can be pretty much assumed that he did not survive the war. So Herschel Greenspan is a name that should be remembered by all Jews. Unfortunately, his name only comes up once a year when they speak about Kristallnacht. So it's an interesting situation. Uh, after the war, the previous prime minister of, uh, of uh, Germany was very uh, sympathetic toward Israel, probably because of uh, bad conscience. The problem now is that all over the world, Jews are experiencing a resurgence of anti-Semitism. So we have, even in the United States, uh, synagogue doors are being reinforced, and Jewish Jews and Jewish businesses are being attacked, particularly on their college campuses. People are careful not to wear anything that can identify them as Jews, like a kippah, and... Um, those who don't are in danger of verbal or even physical attack. It's happening all over Europe as well in the United States. Members of Antifa, the supposedly anti-fascist organization, support the anti-Israel BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And Germany... In Germany, where anti-Semitism was suppressed after the defeat of the Nazis, it has again unashamedly raising its ugly head. In a recent government election, the AFD party, the Alternative for Germany, won a little more, won a more, a little more than 10% of the votes. It is a nationalist and right-wing populist political party that stands for opposition to the European Union, and it is opposed to immigration. It is at the furthest right of the political spectrum. The, uh, at a recent party congress of this organization, there was a consensus of their dislike of Islam. They agreed to include the sentence, Islam does not belong to Germany, in their manifesto. Now, obviously, these sentiments can be extended to anti-Semitism. The, uh, 
It's uh, these right-wing positions that include anti-Semitism in Germany uh, are coming into the mainstream. And that's something to worry about. Only time will tell which direction the uh, the new social democratic chancellor of Germany, Schultz, will lead his country. But the signs are not encouraging. So 83 years after Kristallnacht, anti-Semitism is again rising in Europe and in Germany. And it's something we have to keep our eye on. It's very tragic. We thought after the Second World War and the discovery of the concentration camps and death camps, uh, anti-Semitism would disappear. It did not disappear. It simply went undercover, and it is raising its ugly head again. And it's something we have to be aware of, and we have to keep our eye on it. Thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 